0: Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege it is to be able to gather with your people. And Lord, we thank you that you do speak to us through the pages of your word, even from books that were written thousands of years before today. They still have great relevance for us today because you are still that same God. You're still alive and you still act towards your people in the same way. And so, Lord, we pray that you may make an impact upon our hearts this morning as we look at your word together. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're actually going to be taking a break from the New Testament for some time, and that is to look at the book of Hosea. It is a smaller book in the Old Testament, but it still is rather lengthy, and I will try and move through it rather quickly. But Hosea was a prophet that was during uh, the times when the kingdoms of Israel and kingdoms of Judah were in force. So uh, basically, if you want to recap of the Old Testament, firstly, you have with Genesis, uh, God creates Adam and Eve. From Adam and Eve, you eventually get Abraham. From Abraham, his uh, great-grandchildren are the 12 tribes of Israel. From those tribes, you end up with uh, the conquering of the land of Canaan. They spend some time in Egypt in slavery. Moses brings them out in Exodus. They end up in the, the, the land of Israel. But then there's a split after King Solomon, and there's a kingdom of Israel, there's a kingdom of Judah. And you see that reflected in the opening verse of Hosea, that there's different kings of two different kingdoms. It says in verse 1 of Hosea, which is found on page 889 of the Black Church Bibles, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Aziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So we've got four kings. He's there prophesying during the times of those four kings of Judah and also during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south, and he actually has quite a significant period of time that he is a prophet for. He's there as a prophet for four kings of Judah and one king of Israel. And Hosea is told at the beginning of this book to do something that is quite unusual, quite shocking. What is that? Well, he's told to take a wife of unfaithfulness and children of unfaithfulness, an adulterous wife. In verse 2 of Hosea chapter 1, we read, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery and departing from the Lord. Hosea gets instructions to marry someone. And he's getting told what sort of character that person has to be. It has to be a wife who is adulteress. That is what he is meant to be looking for in a wife. And one other translation of this would be a wife of whoredom is the older translation. That she's actually a prostitute that he is to marry. And this isn't what you normally look for in a bride. You don't look for someone that will cheat on you. But that is what Hosea is told to do. And he's also told to take a wife that will bear him children who aren't his. You see that in the verse. Verse 2, it says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. You're going to have a family where you've got children who are from affairs from your wife. They're not your kids you will have those people in your family. Now, why would God tell Hosea to do this? Well, it's there in verse 2. It says that he is to take an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. Hosea's marriage is meant to be a metaphor for God's relationship with the people of God, the Israelites, How they are behaving is meant to be reflected in the life of Hosea and his marriage to a woman of unfaithfulness, an adulterous woman. And so Hosea goes ahead and does what the Lord commands. And we see that in verse 3. It says, So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And he ends up having three children by this woman, uh, Gomer. Uh, the first is uh, mentioned in verse uh, uh, 3, but of course then verse 4 plays this out. It says, Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel and I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I'll break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. So Gomer marries Hosea. They have a son together. His name is to be Jezreel. Why? Because it's to take significance for something that has happened in Israel history, Israelite history. What was that? Well, it says because of the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. Uh, This is uh, not quite clear as to what event is actually uh, being spoken of here. It could be where Jehu himself, who was a king of Israel, did indeed massacre a lot of people. But then his house, uh, his, his sons, who were subsequent kings from him, also did persecute uh, those who were true worshippers of God as well. And so God is telling Hosea, have this son, call him Jezreel, because at Jezreel, this place, a lot of God's people have died. And he is meant to stand out as a metaphor to, uh, for people to listen to, that God is not happy with them and what has been going on at Jezreel. Also, another child is born, and that's in verse 6. So we have one son, then we have a daughter shows up in verse 6. It says, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. See, the first son, Jezreel, is probably Hosea's son. It says in verse 3, uh, so he married Gomer daughter of Diblaim and she conceived and bore him a son. But remember, he was meant to marry a woman who would have children of unfaithfulness. And so the third, uh, the second child, the daughter appears to not be Hosea's child. It doesn't say that Gomer bore to Hosea a daughter. No, she just bears a daughter. She has committed an act of adultery and actually conceived a daughter from that adulterous relationship. And that's also hinted at in the way that the name of the child is presented. The name of the child is Lo-Rohumah, which if you follow the little footnote in verse 6 down to the bottom, if you know some Hebrew, it's, it means not loved. And so, of course, it would be difficult for Hosea to love a daughter that is not his, that is born from an adulterous relationship. But this daughter is meant to signify that God is unhappy with the people and he does not love them, that they are like this daughter, that they are from an adulterous relationship and he is not happy with them. So the daughter is meant to be another metaphor for the relationship that God has with his people. And then there's a third child that's also born and that is told to us in verse 8 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 8, it says, After she, that's Gomer, had weaned Lohurumar, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Another child is born, and once again it appears that this child is not Hosea's either. It doesn't say that Gomer bore to Hosea a son. No, she has this child. Another adulterous relationship has come along, and she's conceived again a child who is not Hosea's. And that child is called Lo-Ami, Not my people. If you know some Hebrew and look at the footnote there, that's what lo ami means. Not my people. And so, of course, Hosea is looking at this child, this son, and knowing this is not his. This is not his people. And that is meant to be a metaphor of, once again, God's disgust with the people that are claiming that they are his, the Israelites. They are not his people. He does not consider them to belong to him. And so that child is a warning. God's people that they do not belong to Him. Now, this is a shocking account. Uh, You look at this and you see Hosea there, and you think, poor bloke, he's told to marry someone who will have adulterous relationships, and then he marries her and she does. And not only that, he has to welcome into his home children who are born from those adulterous relationships. He has to have continual reminders in the home every day that his wife has betrayed him. And so people look at Hosea chapter 1, theologians throughout history, and have said, this cannot be the case. God would not tell someone to do this. It's too shocking. But I think when you look at this and you read it plainly, I think the burden of proof is on others to show that this is some sort of vision or something that didn't actually take place. It seems to read quite clearly that Hosea did indeed marry Gomer. Gomer and did indeed have children that didn't belong to him in his home. So what is God trying to tell you with Hosea's shocking marriage here? Well, I think once again the Bible is trying to teach us that earthly marriages, including unhealthy marriages, teach us about the greatest marriage of all. The Bible regularly describes God's relationship with the church as a marriage and uses our earthly marriages so that we can then understand Him. We often think that marriages here in this world are about our personal happiness. They're all about us. But ultimately, marriage is a display of the relationship that God has with the church. Our little marriages are meant to be shadows by which we see the greatest of all marriages, and that is between God and his church. And the New Testament picks up on this again and again by describing Jesus as the bridegroom, and we've read one passage like that in 1 Corinthians 11 where it's alluding to that as well. It's pointing us to the fact that Christ is our bridegroom and we are his bride. And so we usually point out healthy marriages as ones that attract people to God. So as you see an earthly marriage, you think of a couple that are all lovey-dovey, usually after they've first gotten married, they love one another dearly, they'll do anything for each other. You look at that and you go, ah, that's how... God relates to me. Isn't that wonderful that the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, loves me with a love that is the love of a husband? And I respond to him with the love of a bride. And so when you look at an earthly marriage, a healthy one, you go, isn't it wonderful that God loves me so much? And shouldn't I pattern my marriage after that marriage of a groom laying down his life for his bride, as Jesus did for the church? And so that's the usual way that we look at the marriage between God and his people as a healthy marriage where God loves his people so much and his people love him so much. And we encourage that in our marriages. Just by having a healthy marriage, you're actually displaying the gospel love of God. But then Hosea comes along and teaches us that we can actually learn from unhealthy marriages in this world something of our relationship with God as well. Hosea teaches us that the pain of adultery in our earthly marriages helps us to understand the pain that we cause God every time we embrace sin. Why would God choose such a metaphor to show us? Why would he use a marriage of unfaithfulness, an unhealthy marriage, to display his relationship with the church? Well, it's because we like to think that sin is no big deal. That to err is human, that of course it's not that big a deal to sin. And it's God's job to forgive us after all. He's meant to, as we sin, just keep on forgiving us. Surely our sin is swept easily under the carpet. I had someone once tell me that, well, it should be easy for God to forgive sin because I forgive people all the time. When they sin against me, it's no big deal. I say, oh, it's all right, mate. Doesn't matter. And so, of course, God should be able to do that as well. It shouldn't be that big a deal for God to forgive my sin. But God shows us how terrible our sin is by calling it adultery in Hosea chapter 1. When you sin, you are putting whatever it is you're embracing over and above your groom, God Himself. Jesus Christ. You are saying, I prefer the loving embrace of that sin than the loving embrace of my God. And so if you want to know how big a deal it is when you place something before God, consider the pain of adultery in earthly marriages. If you're married and you're here this morning, consider the pain that adultery would cause in your marriage. If you found out that your spouse had been cheating on you. And sadly, some of you may even know the pain of such an adulterous action. And if you're not married and you're here this morning, imagine adultery of a parent. Imagine if your mother or father committed adultery or a couple that you love dearly, you, you see them together and you love how they interact with one another. Think about what it would mean if they one of those people the husband or the wife committed adultery, or consider a future spouse committing adultery. So all of us this morning, whether you're married or you're single, consider what it would be like if your spouse, real or imaginary, committed adultery. Think about it. What would it feel like? And not only does your spouse tell you about that adulterous relationship that they have, but you actually witness the act itself. You come in on them while they're committing adultery. How would you feel? And not only that, they actually conceive a child because of that adulterous relationship. And that child is then brought into the home and you see that child every day. And then another child is added to your family from another adulterous relationship. How would you feel every day being reminded of your spouse's unfaithfulness. You have that pain in view. Can you picture it? Now, that is the pain that you cause God every time you embrace sin. The betrayal, the horror, the outrage that you would feel, the disgust, the sorrow the aching in the aching pain that would go on and on that is what god feels when you embrace sin god has given us the marriage metaphor to awaken us from our stupor about sin we need to hear sin called adultery because we stubbornly don't see the wounds that our sin causes We are committing adultery every time we embrace sin. We're committing adultery against God every time we embrace sin. And we often don't, we simply don't care. We think, oh, God will forgive it. It's no big deal. And we commit it in his presence. He sees it all. It's not as though you're doing it behind closed doors and it's not really that big a deal to God. He doesn't really know what I'm doing. So it's okay. No, you're committing adultery in his presence every time you embrace something that you know he doesn't want you to embrace. And you accumulate scars from that embrace, from that act of adultery as well, like children who would be conceived from such adulterous relationships and live in the home with you. If you consider the serious sins that you've committed over your life, have they produced scars in you? Are there temptations that you deal with today that you would have never dealt with if you'd never embraced that sinful action? Are there deep pains of regret in you day by day about things that you've done in the past? We have children to those acts of sin so easily, and they live with us for the rest of our lives. There are things I've seen that I can't get out of my head. And I've embraced those things in the past and that's and you can't remove them. They're like children that live with you for the rest of your life. Hosea is a shocking book but it's needed because our sin is so shocking and we're too thick to see it most of the time. We don't care about our sin. We think God will forgive it, it's no big deal. But it's adultery to God. It's actual pain to him. And so it is wonderful for us to consider a book like Hosea because it reminds us of how marvellous our God is in marrying us in the first place and continuing to forgive us despite our adulterous embraces of sin. It is wonderful that God has chosen to be our groom. In his mercy, he has embraced us and taken us to belong to him. When I consider my own life and how filthy it is, I wonder why God ever chose me to marry him. Why did he choose me to be part of his bride? But he has. And I encourage you, if you're in this room and you've never married Christ, you've never embraced him, you've never trusted in him, then do so today. He is a wonderful groom a marvellous one, unlike any other groom in this world. But if you have married Jesus, do you give yourself to false gods all too easily? Hosea calls you to repent anew and confess your adultery against God. Hosea warns you against indulging in sin. He tells you, come to God, confess your sin, and don't do it in the future. Love your groom over and above all things of this world. And so if Christ is your groom, it should grieve you to sin against him. Otherwise, you may find on Judgment Day, if you keep on embracing sin, you may find Christ on Judgment Day saying what God says to the people of Israel here in Hosea. He says, you are not my loved one and you are not my people. If you continue to commit adultery against Christ, Why do you think on Judgment Day he will say, you are my loved one and you are my people, if all your life you've claimed to be in a marriage relationship with him but been off with other lovers all the time, causing him endless pain as you claim to be married to him? Thankfully, if you do turn to Jesus from your adultery, he is the most gracious spouse that has ever lived. You see hints of this even in the book, the graciousness of God. You see his judgment upon the people here and pointing out sin in the starkest of all terms. You also see his grace shown as well. I mean, Hosea's name itself, if you know some Hebrew, means salvation. So there's a hint even in Hosea himself that there is salvation from sin. But also in verse 7, as he's saying that He will no longer show love, in verse 6, to Israel. What does it say in verse 7? Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. Yes, he's condemning the house of Israel, but remember there's the other kingdom, the house of Judah, and he's saying, I will show love to them. And then in verse 10, after he said, you're not my people, in verse 9, what does he say in verse 10? Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the sheesh- seashore, which cannot be measured or counted, hinting back at the wonderful covenant of grace begun with Abraham, where his people would be like the sand of the seashore. In the place where it, it continues in verse 10, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Like Hosea can't help himself here. God is, can't help himself. He's saying you're not my people, but You you will be called the sons of the living God. And then verse 11, the people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited and they'll appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. Verse 1 of chapter 2 there. It's reversed. Remember it was a daughter that was called not my loved one. And here in verse 1 it says of the sisters, you are my loved one. And it was a boy who was called not my people, but here it said of the brothers, you are my people. And it's told here in this passage, it's hinted at, you don't see it as fully as you do in the New Testament, how this will come about, that God's grace will be shown. How is it shown? Well, verse 7 says it's not by... Bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. How are they saved? By the Lord their God himself. And then it's a leader comes up in verse 11 who will reunite both houses. Who is that leader? Who is God himself and a leader? It's pointing forward to Jesus Christ, the one who will unite all God's people, the groom who continues to forgive, the one who gave his life, So that his blood would cleanse us from all our acts of adultery against God. All our embraces of the sin of this world. So although Hosea warns us about our sin, it also encourages us to go back to Christ despite our unfaithfulness. That he welcomes us back as a groom is so loving and so tender and we'll see this again next week as we continue to look at Hosea together and this is the reason ultimately this salvation that comes the groom welcoming back the unfaithful bride as Hosea did welcoming even unfaithful children of unfaithfulness into his home I think this is the reason why I believe it really took place because as Hosea and Gomer remained together So Christ remains in an adulterous marriage as well. Every time I sinned in the last week, Christ remained with me despite my sin. And so people say it's too shocking a marriage. God would not order this kind of thing to take place, that Hosea and Gomer couldn't be real. But then it would be too shocking that God would remain in a relationship with people who continue to be unfaithful to him week after week after week. And so if God does it, then I don't see a problem with Hosea doing it either because if Hosea and Gomer are not real then maybe my marriage with God is not real then maybe I'm not his people I'm not his loved one anymore because I've been so adulterous so let the weight of Hosea's message fall on you this morning yes we look at healthy marriages to see the love of God towards us but we should consider unhealthy marriages as well and even imagine what it would feel like if our marriage was as unhealthy as Hosea's. And then let that lead us to come and confess our sin to God once more and work at keeping ourselves from further acts of adultery against God so that we would come to Christ and bind ourselves to him in love more than ever before. He is an altogether lovely groom. He is the fairest of 10,000. He is a wonderful groom who welcomes us back. Come before him, confess your adultery, ask for his forgiveness, and ask for his help in keeping you from sin in the future. Let's come before God and do that now. Heavenly Father, we must confess that we do not understand our relationship with you as we ought. We do not see it for what it really is, and so you have given us ways of seeing it, and particularly the way of marriage. Lord, we thank you for earthly marriages and how they help us to understand your relationship with us all the better. But Lord, we must admit as we look at this metaphor of marriage, Lord, we understand the pain we then cause you when we embrace sin. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us. We ask that you would overlook once again all our acts of adultery against you. And Lord, we pray that you would bring us into your loving embrace once more. And Lord, we pray that you would want us to desire nothing else. That we would desire to love you above all else. Keep us from sin. Keep us from grieving you once more. pray this in Christ's name. Amen.